0: Bookworm Games, Xenogears Series, Episode 2, Things Almost Forgotten. Welcome back. Xenogears, or Foreign Strange, Humanoid, Giant Robots, the Longform Essay Podcast. This week we launch into the game proper. The lengthy intro wraps up with a shift from the anime art style prologue to the normal game text recounting the history of the protracted war between Ave and Kislev, and situating us in Lahan, a small village near the border. To learn more about Gebler and the role of Gears in shaping the struggle of late, we'll have to keep playing. But the punctuation marking them out draws our attention to these new words as being important. There are Orwellian 1984 resonances with the war, which has been going on so long, no one remembers the reason. But as the desert setting becomes more prominent, we might also think of Israel-Palestine. The aesthetic of Lahan, like its name, connotes something more Far Eastern. Abruptly, the abstract becomes concrete. A fight sequence provides our first look at gears and of the hand-drawn visuals for main characters and Satan. The cinematic manner is there even though the art is game-rendered now. Kung Fu overcomes the rifle-toting mechs. Finally, an image of flames from the fight background resolves itself into an extreme close-up, wavering to stillness, the pixels like patches of paint in a Cezanne. So it seems As Faye's prophetic dream, or our leap forward and back again in time, settles on him in the basement studio, putting the final touches on a painting of fire. Then his brush and palette vanish. The player is given control of his movements. It's a little surprising in a game like this that you can not only run around and check things, you can also jump, and you can even rotate the camera 360 degrees. Though you can look at the painting again, you aren't able to interact with it in any other way. And there are other scenes. Does each painting represent some such vision? Perhaps the different elements, earth and wind, to go with fire? That would fit with the game's interest in personality types, and allude back to the old theory of the humors, or to yin and yang undergirding the more Freudian and post-Freudian psychological theory that predominates. Among the first things you learn about Faye from talking to the women in the other rooms is that he's been a gifted artist since he came to them, though his memory is amnesiac. Talking to the maid cues a flashback. This, it's pretty clear, is for the player's benefit, that Faye is not actually seeing this. Back to the stormy night of Faye's arrival, when he was carried to the door, badly wounded by a masked and cloaked man. You can just see his mask, and no Phantom of the Opera mashup, under a blue hood. More on him later. So as thinkers from Plato to Jung have argued, in Xenogear's art seems to be transcending ordinary consciousness. whether putting Faye in touch with the unconscious or with the divine muses, if that's a meaningful distinction, when he paints. The brush, being an aesthetic detail rather than a playable object, as of course it must be, is powerfully symbolic then, no less than the image of the fire. Destructiveness and creation channeled at once. So in the game you can run and fight, but not paint. It's just that sort of game. But running and jumping and checking drawers and talking to people, you can find not only information, but a spider web, the first of Lahan's many items. You're crafting in the art form of the game, which consists in movement, in action, as well as imagery and reflection, play and narrative. Leaving this curiously well-lit cellar of the artistic unconscious, Faye encounters two more archetypal figures, in Chief Lee, his caretaker, or adoptive grandfather, and Timothy, his alter ego, an upstanding young man born and bred in the village. Talking to Timothy, we learn not about the past, but about the future, the wedding tomorrow between him and and Faye's other best friend, Alice. Is there some tension, not too deeply buried, insecurity there on Timothy's part about Alice's and Faye's relationship? His relief at Faye supporting him is not unmixed with something like jealousy, particularly once Dan, Alice's spunky little brother with the egregious forehead, barges in saying he needs to speak with Faye in private but the two young men have a laugh at the boy's earnestness chiefly playing the stock dirty old man but also with real parental vicarious wistfulness murmurs about how he used to bring home girlfriends in his youth surely there's something to that for the player too experiencing the world vicariously through Fay. and stepping outside the chief's house a bright, cheerful day, quite unlike the rain swept night, you have the first real choice, or maybe the first instance of the only real choice there is in the game, of who to talk to first and how much to explore before progressing the plot. And something interesting about these conversations, usually you'll be allowed to continue walking around and exploring while the people are talking to you. At times when you can't accuse you in that what they're saying is important in some way, even requisite to progress the plot, or in the case of some of the conversations here, it is spoofing importance. It's the game's gentle self mockery. All in all, there's a great deal of the enjoyment to be found in the game that consists in the artifice of these portions of town exploration. Reading conversations, usually just halves of conversations, which give just enough of an illusion of reality to be charming, provide just enough relief from the adventure to help accentuate the deeper messages of the story. Paradigmatic here is the business between Dan and Faye, where he proposes a whole flight of fancy, of eloping with his sister, which, whether you agree to it or not, remains only that, imaginative wish-fulfillment, and even more so, Faye's actual conversation with Alice, Even the illusion of choice is withheld here, as phase lines cannot be chosen. But the illusion of his and Alice's friendship is convincing. It doesn't seem to make any difference in what dialogue you get from Alice and Dan, depending on whom you talk to first. There's no cause and effect here, other than fleshing out these characters, their emotions, really remarkably nuanced. A ready-made metaphor uh, in the 3D of the character sprites, boxed in by flat, stage-set-like environments. The story, seeking to break the boundaries of the game technology, and perfectly able to, given our proneness to being captivated and cooperating with it imaginatively. That 3D, 2D, fleshed-out, flat distinction is highlighted by the wedding dress, the article of clothing which is to Alice what Faye's painting is to him. Recall how, in the Genesis story, the clothing of the man and woman represents at once their fall into experience, but also their covering of that vulnerability by a loving creator. Faye gets threatened by Alice's aunts to behave himself, but it seems to be playful. Conversation up in her room before the wedding dress is full of what is left unsaid same tension we picked up on with Timothy but Faye lets it lie not even making a joke about it certainly not dealing with it head on as Dan proposed Alice says as much as she can but is left with the same question on a deeper level as she looks at her beautiful dress is this fate? Faye remains friends with both but it cannot escape him that it is possible to imagine things might have been different. At any rate, before leaving town, you can also opt to be treated to a series of puns from a mysterious narrator at the central well, though they miss the chance to make a well-tall one somehow. Each time, you hop down, finding different items up to three. The magic number with your neighbor, the rock-paper-scissors king, is five in a row, a feat I've never managed. Another house schools you on the battle system, whose complexities would be better explained by an actual tutorial, probably. And also about save blocks, floating, spinning, transparent shafts of golden light with their glyph like a winged sword. The latter information flows in an impossibly fast block of text from none other than Luka, the inventor girl from Chrono Trigger, whose presence is inexplicable, unless by stepping out of the game for a moment, to note the collaboration of Masato Kato on the writing team. The truth about the memory cubes, which we learn much later, only makes this joke on the part of the developers more impenetrable. There's the requisite rudimentary shop, giving an early sense of how Spartan the item usage system will be, but memorable interactions also await in the much livelier bar. Not allowed to buy anything here, Faye nevertheless has his chance to talk to the barkeep, to the prostitute, Ellen. Later, one of Bart's pirate crew will be reading romance novels about Helen, and with the drunkard in the corner. Taking a shine to Fay for talking to him, he hands over the mermaid tear, and with it his snatch of poetry. It seems to be a jewel. Like many of the items you can pick up here, this will only do something much later. But I wonder what it means that those later events are so powerfully shaped by the seeds of things which in themselves seem so trivial. The big talker in the corner is going to Black Moon and on to Ava to make his fortune, and he prefigures Faye's own journey, as does the soldier whose family misses him. That'll be a common refrain in other war-torn towns, too. The guy at the bar talks about a cold wind blowing, and then laughs, saying it was a joke that he's always wanted to say something like that. But it actually sounds an awful lot like what the... uh, Mysterious Prophet tells you in the floating world of Chrono Trigger. And uh, looking out over the horizon from a rooftop here. Probably anxious by now to get going. Moving on. Taken together, all this, simple enough in itself, rapidly builds up the colic serenity of the sort that games like Xenogears delight in shattering and even an unusually complex and satisfying one. The town and its denizens have personality, which will be a hallmark of the game's non-playable characters or NPCs. This is where there is freedom. In terms of the main story, the only choice is to progress or to stay put, exploring more or less on the way to the next inexorable plot point. The first of which is going up the mountain to the doctor's house for a camera out of phase concern for Dan handling the delicate instruments, but also for the prospect of Yui's cooking. On the path, whichever way you choose to go first, you'll end up needing a running jump eventually. It's probably just a little bit of a stretch to see in this an allusion to Nietzsche's Zarathustra on the one hand, or to Kierkegaard's leap of faith on the other, But something is different once you take this mountain path with its leap and its ambient nature sounds. Something irrevocable is already gone. There'll be no more chances to find mermaid's tears or RPS badges or these trees with the egg and the spider. Random battles give you the taste of what's to come, letting you experiment with attacks consisting different points, gaining gold and experience maybe some combo points, which are completely useless at this point, as is the equip function, the chi. Uh, They don't matter much for now. Though you'll note that there are different items to use in and out of battle. You can save if you choose, and if you do, you might see the chapter title has changed. Or you might not notice that yet. Up above the valley where the wind is born. Beautiful songs, this one, and My village is number one, with beautiful titles, too. Up there is the doc's delightful house. His wife, Yui, and his daughter, Midori, greet you, each in their own way. The little girl silent. And maybe this is why Faye keeps her ring in a secret pocket. The chickens popping up everywhere, and the colorful birds on the roof, the telescope, the stash of money, and a chimney spout. And what looks like an acupuncture diagram and Chinese characters on the wall all contribute, like Yui's hospitality and Midori's silence, to the sense that this too is a place with a story. Satan's so contribution is his tinkering. He'll be an important character, but we'll talk more about him in the next few chapters. An explosion and his learned vituperation come from a mech crouching over the shed not a humanoid one but a giant one supposedly in the original conception he was going to defeat enemies with sophistry but inside a mysterious case something like those statues alcibiades compared socrates to in the symposium only this one is a music box like a smaller solider version of the memory cubes. It unfolds from a rectangle to lay out a familiar shape, a cross. And standing inside, an angel turning slowly in a roseate light, sparkle effects like at a dance while the music plays. The scene for me is up there with anything in games, up there with the first level in Super Mario Brothers 3, or the gigas battle in Earthbound, or the hand-holding in Eco. And the player does nothing, for the character does nothing, wrapped in ineffable nostalgia, just as we are. To look a bit at the dialogue here, let's amble first through the poem. In a meadow of thick green turf, speckled with gray rock, The village dozed, nestled round with forests beneath the hill's placid slopes. Though on the front, it was far off to the side. No troops thought to trample its modest fields or commandeered the homes of stone and thatch to gather for a push across the border. The occasional wagon did creak along the track bound for Daziel, the desert outpost, that the heavy load might wend its way thence to Bledevi. Though in demand for connoisseurs, the prize radishes and subtle cheeses of Lahanka well be lost en route, for a few dinosaurs, I have heard, and other monsters still roamed the black moon wood. Besides, the close-knit villagers preferred to relish themselves the produce of their sweat in company of friends. Not many quiet towns like it remained. The tender lean of wall and chimney was toppled by the battle weary. Stores and houses and those buildings which served as both were raised alike. Wells were tapped dry or tainted by the bloated dead. The capitals of the belligerents swelled meanwhile. Families of refugees fled the fighting. Crying babies and young men eager to fill the ranks left by fallen fathers. All were victims of the dubious war. Lahong preserved the rustic ways exhausted elsewhere and slumbered in its remote valley just the same. One or two small aberrations, innocent-seeming, were let pass and adopted trustingly into Lahong. A stranger and his wife with their small daughter, a wounded boy calling for his father. A vagrant aged beyond his years, smelling of drink at all hours, who spoke at times of mermaid tears. For in a world where souls migrate and move outside of time, Deeply buried in the meanest sprite, untold mysteries must wait to be found. Such glamorous ones, who journey widely, will touch the rest, all lives, Twined finely as the spider-web draped in a corner of the basement, and like it, easily overlooked, fragile, but with patience and care proving strong enough to catch a fish, Faye painted, not remembering. Late that night, Chief Lee had sat in front of the fire, sipping tea splashed with spirits. Often his old bones resisted sleep's embrace, to-night he worried. Was the mountain path washed out and Cetin, stranded? Other nights it was a reverie of youthful days. There came a knock. The maid abed, Lee answered the door himself. He soon found out firsthand how fared the mountain path to the new doctor's house. Satan did what he could with his bandages and bitter herbs, and his arcane books were all brought out. These conspired to fill the air with an acrid stuffiness. But the casements were kept closed. The patient's life trembled on the brink. Like a dandelion in the seer, the softest draft, and it would whirl away. Sunlight demurred at the shutters. Villagers gossiped or prayed. On the third morning, Satan found his guest awake, looking at him. Oh, the worst may be behind us. Hello, how do you feel? No. No need to talk, but you must be hungry. Rest for now, though I confess I am curious to hear your story. He mumbled under his breath in the corridor, asked his wife for a thin rice gruel with a gravy of sundry bracing spices, and sent Midori down to share the cheery news. Fay painted, not foreseeing, fire. Carnage encased in steel, agony, shouts, the canvas concealed it, red and wet. He'd been afforded three years in Lahan. His simple, gentle nature made him easy to love, yet there were none he quite allowed to know him well. Indeed, he knew no more than the rest. All he remembered was his name, though he felt much that stayed locked away. The chief would not be awed by a lad in need of help, would never bend to those who clucked. Such grievous wounds cannot bode well. He must fend for himself, Lee, send him on his way. He put him up in his own house. It was the biggest. His children grown, He had guidance yet to bestow, and Fay would etch a few more laughs into that careworn face. The village girls learned quickly not to handle anything valuable, not to try the milk pail's frothy rim when he came near. If he looked their way, they dipped themselves in his dark eyes, and ever after, to hear the shuffle of his sandals or see his ponytail jounce along his back would scent their hearts fluttering. Timothy, Alice's beau was secure enough in her sensible adoration to do what no other dared. For jealousy or simple shyness, he befriended Faye. The little children chasing round the well had the bold innocence of their years to treat him like any other person, like themselves, which helped their parents give in at last to their better nature. Yui and Citan, the second latest into town, welcomed Faye to their high-perched house on the knoll, ringed by its crooked fence. Patching up Doc's shed after a fall of tinkering and explosions, Faye drew the task of whitewashing the begrimed walls as Sitan set bricks and mortar to the chinks. Yui, raking leaves, and Midori, who patted dirt and seeds, imagining the flowers, raised their heads at Sitan's excited chattering. He had found Faye just holding the brush distant. Something you have forgotten that your hand recalls. That link prompted them to convert part of the chief's cellar to a modest studio. Faye would paint alone for hours to relax the way others might read yellowing letters. The moon and eager stars peered into the gulch through bridge slats bound by fraying ropes, where Satan taught Dan the rudiments of martial arts. Sweat beaded on the boy's forehead, neither felt the chill that would clamp their limbs when they stopped and hound them to hearthside. A view of the angled sun between rock walls brought Fay into the evening valley, but Doc, with his willowy style and struggling Dan, amused him more. Satan saw him watching. Whom? Will you paint Fay an action scene of me embarrassing Alice's brother here? Not at all, the youth replied. Dan, try this when you tire of Doc on his high horse. A disc of chi plunked into Satan's gut, singeing his robes of rich green dye. Dan whooped and clenched his impish fist. Teach me that they sparred in friendly sport or painted did his part at harvest time handy with a scythe. was polite with acquaintances to put them at ease never shirked a chore at the bar he drank cider sheepish at the bantering of the loose women respectful of the waist of a man whose roomy eyes lingered on him whose dirty nails pressed a gem into his palm after lunch he took walks in the country fashion Before dinner at Huey's cottage, he might climb a tree or two. The pines were generous, carpeting the floor he lay upon beside Alice or Timothy, talking or listening to the wind. From Doc's scope, ascended to in its garret, across roofs guarded by many colors of birds, he saw the land like a wheel spoke surrounded by sea. Down among them the field stretched as summer itself drowsy with grasshoppers. Alice's eyes, not quite poached by the sun, spotted two hares. She squeezed Faye's elbow, and they watched them sprint off. Their picnic spot had a view of the sea. Away off in the haze where the sun's clarity met the mist and turmoil of the craggy coast, the clouds took on strange shapes, chimeras born in demon's daydreams. When he squinted up his eyes a little, Awaking from a nap, Fay thought he could see the cloudscape of a city, turrets in the wisps, arches in the thunderheads, away over the open ocean. But then he woke up fully. He saw the summer clouds there, nothing more. The wedding day drew near. This might be the last he and Alice could stroll like this to the sea, before she married her best friend and his, assumed all the toils of a village wife, more and more she had been receding from that sisterly love he had always had conferred upon him into her wifely bounds and from the village ways and fields into her room where she sewed her wedding dress the afternoon before the day set by the augurs as auspicious for new beginnings they put the finishing touches to his gift for the newlyweds that scene of lambent reds he paid Alice warm compliments on her lace work. Do you ever think if things had been different, if you'd been born here in this village? He paused, but padded back down the stairs, agreed to bring the camera down from docks and assuage her anxieties as much as he could. What did he know about marriage, or what might have been? On the way out, in a neighborly duel of RPS, acumen, or luck were his, the timeless unfolding of games, Faye wore the wind as a badge. Ducked himself in the well, and rambled up the mountain path, where fall hung ever in the shadowing branches of the trees, something desolate in the rustling wind, dark obverse of springtime solitude at the top of the trail. The dock was not in the garden tiny dropped ring poked out of the flower beds. Nor did he seem to be in the bathtub. No singing came out of the window. At last, Fay followed Yui's hint to find her husband, as he might have guessed, tinkering around back by the shed. The spindly limbs of a land crab upbore Satan, who called down to the young man to wait a minute within. On the workbench, a wedding gift gleamed at his footfall the box fell open and the music inside tumbled out the churn and whirr and click and talk of clockwork gears played melody and counterpoint touched keyholes long forgotten in his soul millennial light in rose petal dust spangled the clasped hands of the turning angel soft colors he dreamed of painting with some time long ago somewhere behind those locked doors where bolts were slowly turning. Music is a mysterious thing, making people remember against their will what they don't expect. Long ago, people would listen to this melody, as we are doing now, desiring at times to feel what other times they might forget. Faye, in his reverie, did not reply until talk turned to the meal, the wedding. Satan heard him, on the threshold, remark, I feel strange when I hear this play, something warm inside. Someone, say rather, who loved it long before he became a part of you. The notes trailed off, stopped, shuddering like a ship without a mast, run aground on the shoals. The angel, with an awful crack, broke. She shattered to powder, and his head bowed as for an executioner laying down the blade. A long moment of silence changed by the absent ancient song. The watcher spoke. Is it an omen? But the rest of his words were swallowed up in a sky-wide concussion that shook the shed. The crack in the music box was answered by a crack across the cosmos. Fate stepped in. Hurry, Faye, Satano sang. Get down to the village and get them to safety. But the shooting stars above the rooftops were all Fay saw. Roars of engine exhaust, spatter of gunfire, all his ears and pounding head could make sense of. Gears lancing down through the night, war broken out across the frontier range. Suddenly he had broken away from Satan, holding him back, and he was face to face with the empty, kneeling giant, surrounded by flames and wafting sparks. Here the fallen pilot sprawling, and there in the cockpit, Child leering down. A swinging cross on a chain. Blood-red ruby spinning, shining in the dark. Dropping. Fey, ascending, took the controls. Satan, frantically shepherding villagers away, averted his face. There was fierce combat. Pursuers were felled, but evermore followed. A dark form regardant. Arms crossed, appraising. And there, in the flames... A final tableau. A man running to give aid. Hemmed in. Faye breathed hard. Saw Timothy's chest pierced. His blood. His body set headlong. And saw no more. Blood splashed. Red light. Blood on his face. His hands. His hair loose over his eyes. Leering. Red light. When Faye came to. Lahong was gone, Timothy dead, Alice erased. In the immolation unleashed by the stolen gear, he had been piloting. Dan flung himself on him. His hard little fists beat his sore body. And Satan, recounting, not quite blaming, counseled him to go. So I really like this part of the game my sense is that the developers did too. They hid so many little secrets and padded it out with so much life only to wipe it out with that atomic bomb flash that haunts so much Japanese pop culture. That's about as far as I got with the original poem. There's a little more section I'll move to another part, but and I'll, I'll add more as we go along, but it probably won't be anywhere near this much in any one episode again. Satan is awfully near the mark with his analysis of Fay here. In the ellipses of Fay's thought and over their words, that music plays, also reminiscent of Chrono Trigger, fair enough, but it's as if we're replaying the game some game that affects us in that way that we merely literally are that person who is part of Fey, who liked the music too long ago that rattling and breaking angel Satan's premonition of an omen and his feeling that maybe it would be best to live as a son of man it all mirrors Alice's question. Is this fate? And, of course, her expectation of being married the next day. It also will be echoed later in his remarks that a new wind is blowing when it's time to recapture Alice. And then the shattering glass of the young master. <laughs> Um, The failed evacuation of the village, again, looks harrowingly like the desperate escape from the ship in the prologue, and also from the Yggdrasil later. There's even a few more survivors this time, it seems. So dark as this fallen shadow chapter is, it's a sacrifice which will not be in vain, It's necessary to set this kind of story in motion and the chance meeting, which might lead to the long hidden truth. The shape of Shiva in the sky much later will also bring us back to the scene with the music box. About gear battles and all that good stuff, we'll say more another time. That glimpse of a child, a crooked smile, a glint of red on a swinging cross, necklace, disheveled hair. Id will get to him. And as we're going along, I'm going to be recommending some outside reading that I also think will help with bringing out some of the major themes to touch on in the game. The last uh, weeks were, were pretty obvious, I think, from the Bible. But maybe this week's Suggestion is a little less so. It's a book called Creative Intuition in Art and Poetry by Jacques Maritain, And it's not, as far as I know, one of those works that directly influenced the creative team of Xenogears. But again, for more on those, I highly recommend the Xeno study guides. I'll certainly include some of the ones that are listed there in the recommended readings. But I think this Maritain book, he's a neo-Thomist philosopher of the early 20th century, it does actually a wonderful job of synthesizing a lot of the currents of what we can loosely call Western thought on art and poetry. And having some kind of basis there will really help see just how rich and varied some of this source material is, how remarkable the shifts in thinking, the new interpretations brought about by the later psychologists really are. Thanks for listening.